Thank you for your continued support of the Moz Monthly Podcast. Today's episode was recorded on Wednesday, September 22nd, 2021. Welcome to the Moz Monthly Podcast. Thorough discussion and in-depth information about the news, stories, and trends related to emergency medical services in Michigan. The Moz Monthly Podcast is brought to you by the Michigan Association of Ambulance Services. Here's your host, Moz Executive Director, Angela Madden. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 8 of the Moz Monthly Podcast. I'm your host, Angela Madden, the Executive Director of the Michigan Association of Ambulance Services. Joining me today is State Representative Jeff Yarick. State Representative Yarick was elected to the House of Representatives in 2016. Prior to that, he served on the Richmond City Council and has been a firefighter paramedic for over 25 years. Representative Yarick, how are you today? Yes, hello. Thanks for having me. Representative Yark, really big news coming out of Lansing this week. Yesterday, you joined us on the steps of the Capitol as we celebrated our 2021 Stars of Life, those practitioners who go above and beyond the call of duty. Today, it was your turn to vote on the fiscal year 2022 budget, which includes $12.9 million general fund increase in Medicaid reimbursement for EMS agencies. That's over $54 million gross when you include the federal match. That is a really big deal to Michigan's EMS agencies. Congratulations on a job well done in getting this budget passed and sending it to Governor Whitmer. What would you like to say about the whole process of ensuring that that money gets in to support Michigan's EMS professionals today? It's a big win for EMS. You know, this is the reality is that what EMS has always tried to make do, said spending a career doing this, if one ambulance shows up in a car, in a you know plane crash, they're not going to throw their hands up. They're like, all right, we're just we're going to start somewhere and we're going to keep working to help come. You know, it's more. And this is just the mentality of EMS and fire and responders that we make do. We just whatever it is, we patch it together, get the duct tape, whatever. And you know, so we always haven't been good about asking and saying, look, we need help. And I think we, uh, EMS hit a breaking point this year and said, look, we just cannot keep trying to keep flying this plane uh, with this type of reimbursement. We, we, it, we've hit the breaking point um, as far as staffing vehicles and salary and so forth. Costs are continuing to go up. It, you know, definitely a lot of people championed this issue. Uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of people in the EMS community championed, made calls, talked to legislators, which is important. I always encourage people to talk to the legislature before the vote comes in. You really want to get a rapport early, you know, as opposed to calling on the day of the vote. Usually all the deals are paid by that point, uh, make, getting the rapport. But uh, I did have, you know, my colleagues, I said, well, Matt Markkinen, this has been a big concern if I've been to the UP, so he's been a big champion. He was actually, a, I believe, an Army medic, uh, so kind of neat. Uh, I think he was a paratrooper and he was a medic there, so it was actually... You ever get a chance to sit down with him and just talk about some of his experience? But he's been a big champion for this issue uh, in the UP. Rep Hall also definitely heard this message. And uh, we all came together in a letter, for example, to Chair Whiteford, and uh, the, the subcommittee chair for DHHS. She's actually a nurse. Uh, so if she was, you know, she is sensitive to the issue and understands it's just a matter of, you know, make, getting the money. Uh, keep in mind that in a budget, very often, take you know, pay one thing means you're cutting something up. This year was a little different because there was a lot of extra. There was a lot of extra money, but 
we want this to be sustainable. So I, I credit them for coming with and putting this letter together and saying this is important to us. Then to also to chair Albert, the approach chair, and kind of convince the saying that look, this is really it's time. And quite admittedly, I will say that it helps when some people who aren't paramedics also support the letter. I will say kind of honestly, because uh, I think people know that I'm going to be supporting EMS, you know, so I can carry the message, but it sure helps when other legislators come on board and share that. I had other legislators contact me that said, you know, my local EMS uh, director contacted me and then which allowed me then to, I mean, to talk to that legislator and kind of reinforce what it, what it was about. Because they said, oh, you know, my director had a meeting with me and, and they then they talked to me about it. And then I reinforced, yeah, this is this is what the situation is. And could you go talk to Chair Whiteford and Albert and, you know, give a little nudge. So, you know, I think some of that was also going on. This, this is a huge win for EMS to make sure. I mean, obviously, we know that it's hard for Medicare to cover the cost, too, at that rate. But if we at least can get Medicaid up to the Medicare level, I think this is going to do a lot of good for our, our funding issues. Uh, in EMS, and it was it was a very reasonable ask, I think, to bring Medicaid up to Medicare. That's a huge piece of the appropriations process, and and a substantial piece of the FY22 budget that the Michigan Legislature passed the Senate yesterday, the House of Representatives today. As the only paramedic in the legislature today, how would you describe your role? on the floor and advocating for EMS issues with your colleagues outside of the budget. Let's talk policy. If my colleagues have come to me with concerns about the opportunities for training, uh, I think many of my colleagues understand that there's a personnel shortage and then how can we solve this? I appreciate the work of, of Moss reaching out with a number of ideas they have. I'll be joining the task force, uh, the recruitment retention task force that EMSCC is putting together, I, I plan on attending those meetings, and I've had other meetings with DHHS, you know, sort of thinking, what can we do? So I have a number of colleagues that are very supportive, that they know they have issues in their district, and I feel like they've said, you know, what can we do to support you in, in getting this done? I, I would like to mention, I, did, I thought about something else, it's, it's uh, urban search and rescue, uh, which is part of what we do. I mean, you know, we have EMS, but urban search and rescue is a, a piece of all this. Happy to see that this year, uh, it occurred to me, we, we got $1 million ongoing and $1 million in a one time for equipment upgrades. So not necessarily EMS, but obviously when we have urban search and rescue, EMS is gonna be a part of helping the people that we get out of, of those structures and collapses and floods. So that piece of it, I was very happy to see uh, that come about. That's great news. Uh, I know I personally hadn't seen that part yet. And so glad, glad to hear it. And thank you for uh, letting all of our listeners know that that is in there. You just touched on recruitment and retention being a major issue that EMS is experiencing today, as are many other industries. Of course, we do not want to um, dismiss the staffing shortages that are happening ar around our country across all industries. But what, as a long-standing paramedic, what would you say to somebody interested in joining EMS today? I think it really depends on what their questions are. Like if they're, you know, if, if they're, what, what are you wondering about this? <laughs> you know? what, yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. You, you caught know. me on that question. If, if they were interested in exploring the career, what would you tell them are the best parts of being a paramedic? Again, it sort of comes to what is it that they want? to do. You know, some people go into EMS, it's, it's kind of seen as their best first job on their way to 
being a nurse or a physician. Uh, I know about people who had interest in medicine in general, and I think it's a great way to start in a medical profession if you're looking to be a doctor or nurse. I mean, to, to get that field experience, to, to see the other, you know, what, what's, what's the beginning of care is EMS. So for those people, some people want to serve, they want to help their community, and they, and they got involved because, they, you know, it's, it's not necessarily looking for a career. They just they want to help and volunteer in their community, so that's their interest. You know, saying there's a great way of being a part of your community. Uh, also, or if they want to be a firefighter, obviously being a paramedic is kind of a big piece for a lot of uh, agents, for a lot of fire departments. So getting into EMS, piece of it, explaining it. You know, also, you know, you know it, being an older person, it just, you know, I, I'm not uh, new to this. You know, I think, uh, you know, I think it's not just about driving fast and, and, and the adrenaline and the trauma. Some of the calls that I will say, you know, I look back and the, the old timers when I came in would talk about this too, is the fact that sometimes the most meaningful thing you can do is, is the compassion that we give, you know, one o'clock at night and, you know, mom dies of cancer and, you know, you're the only friendly face that's there to be supportive when the family doesn't know what to do. They're walking Unfortunately, we, we, you know, that, that person may have been maybe in hospice, but they call, what, what have you. But sometimes what we do is, you know, just compassionate care. And sometimes just being supportive and being the, uh, that face and that person to be strong and compassionate. And then sometimes, I will frankly say, some of the most meaningful calls that I've been in my career, quite honestly, you know, where you really felt like you, you helped them through a bad time. You have positioned yourself as an advocate on behalf of EMS within the Michigan legislature. And I know sometimes that can be a difficult, difficult position to be in. What's the one thing that you would like your colleagues in the legislature to know about EMS that they might not know today, or that is even more important today, given the budget outcomes of the recent days? I find it interesting. I, I will say that uh, what's one thing? I don't know that there's one. I, I will tell you that it frankly would, when I'm on the floor, we start talking about EMS, it's like putting the quarter in. Quite honestly, uh, there uh, it's going to be a longer talk just because I'm such an advocate of EMS issues. And, and so some people, again, keep in mind that legislators are people. I mean, they all come with their own perspective. Some are farmers, some are attorneys, bankers. You know, some people came from manufacturing, teachers. So they may really know their field that they came from, just as I know mine. Uh, they may not know anything about EMS, really, other than, uh, you know, the big red truck shows up with lights. And, and it's, it's not because of an intelligence level. They just, that's not their background. So trying to help them understand the difference between a paramedic and an EMT and uh, MFR service. I just, uh, a colleague just had a question yesterday and uh, their community had. And so we helped give them some information that they could help that community. Because being as a legislator, as someone who's really been in this field a long time, helping them help their community on some of these issues. I, a lot of times I spend, uh, it, it, on the floor today, we were talking about some firefighting standards that are uh, happening. So some of my colleagues were asking about what's happening with this, you know, explaining the NFPA standard part 74. And so they're asking questions and, I, and I'm happy to help explain what the, the issues are, a number of these, uh, these things. As that advocate, and, and you're right, you're absolutely right. Legislators today come from all walks of life um, and they are they bring their expertise to the legislature, which is one of the things I personally believe makes our legislature 
an interesting place to be, right? You can have a conversation about anything at any given time, at any given moment. What, um, what are some of your priorities for the remainder of your term, maybe even just the remainder of this year moving forward? It's a unique opportunity where you have a paramedic on the house floor. Um, I will say that it, as having been a, a firefighter and a paramedic and being on city council and coming to Lansing to advocate, I mean, I've, I've come to Lansing to advocate on many of these issues as a citizen or a city council member or a firefighter and the struggle of trying to get that message heard. You, you get over a big hurdle by actually being the person who votes on the issues. You know, what, getting into the, into the space of the chamber uh, by being a paramedic really helps move the issue. So I will say my top, one of my top priorities, uh, I mean, and I have a lot of issues I work on. My desk is often very full, <laughs> it's, you know, the number of different issues that I take on. Uh, but as far as EMS, I have, there are a lot of things that we've been talking about since I got before, before the legislature I got here. So, and again, this is not necessarily EMS, but, you know, coming here, uh, dealing with PFAS, uh, dealing with, uh, Cancer presumption, which again is not necessarily the EMS issue unless it's in the fire department, but I mean, getting that, there's issues that came up about keeping that funded. Uh, QAP, when I, when I first got here, there was a bill that, there was a QAP bill that uh, sort of got stuck in the bureaucracy. And as a, as a legislator and, and having known, uh, we had the chiefs, we had the union, uh, the firefighters union, and we had MOSS all there. And frankly, I'm not happy with how DHS was working with all the groups. And to kind of be able to be in the position that since I vote on their budget at the time I was on the DHS appropriations, I was kind of felt like I was the right person to kind of push every, you know, the, the, the process and get it done. And, and we did get it done, which did help. You know, I didn't come up with QAP, uh, but the, the QAP funding was something that kind of sat for a long, kind of stuck in a bureaucrat's desk. So I was happy to kind of like move that along. And to, to finish up, uh, I will say that this was a priority getting this funding. I'm very happy. I'm hoping we're going to push for sustainment next year that we, uh, I think it was reasonable to say that Medicaid, we should reimburse uh, the Medicaid at the same rate as Medicare. So my goal will be next year's budget. So I'm on a probe to make sure that stays at that level. Uh, I want to deal with uh, our staffing shortages. We're not, nothing we do today is probably going to take care of it for tomorrow's uh, schedule, as we like to say. You know, who's on the schedule tomorrow? It's going to be probably a few years, but we really have an access issue as far as, as getting paramedics trained. Uh, so we're talking, taking that up. For example, in the UP, my colleague, uh, Rep. Marketing has been very vocal about the issue. There's the shortages up there and not having the opportunities for paramedic programs. There's not a lot of programs up there. And how do we deal with that? How do we deal with accreditation? I will say this is a huge problem that we use the registry, but the registry is tied to accreditation. And the difficulty in, you know, we have a lot of small agencies that were uh, training very good paramedics that do not meet the accreditation requirements. I mean, as far as being able to put on a, a program. And so we lost that as an avenue for a lot of, you know, people. And I, I come from a small town. I live in a small town. But the, 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 the man or woman who says, you know, I want to volunteer for my community. I want to be a part. I'll do a paramedic to, you know, help my community. I'm not really interested in leaving my full-time job, but we've lost that. Those, those people are not going, necessarily going to those programs. So making this more available. Uh, so I think we got to take that on. And I would say that I've been in meetings with DHHS, uh, kind of kicking around ideas and, and there's 
um, and really saying, look, we, we, it's time. We, we, we got it. We've spent a lot of years kind of talking about it. it it's time to get it done. I mean, it, it, and I think some people are going to be, there's going to be people happy and they're going to be upset with the answers. And that's just the reality. But we can't, we can't um, keep doing studies anymore and kind of just talking about it. It's, it's, we are at a breaking point. Sounds to me like you have a lot of work ahead of you and you're up for the challenge. Well, I said I have a year and a half left. Uh, you know, I hope to see another paramedic come to the, the, the house floor. Um, you said, you know, we have our bill for allowing MFRs to license at 16. You know, frankly, DHS has said that they would like to make EMT 17. Uh, and we, you know, this is nothing new because we've done this training in high school for over a decade. You know, they, they do the program in high school. They do the ride-alongs. If, if the student intends to be licensed, they do their ride-alongs. They, they see patients. Uh, they take they can take the registry because the registry dropped their age requirement, but yet the state says we won't let you have a license. And so we're in, in explaining to people that we're not talking about paramedics. We're not having sixteen year olds uh, reading the heart monitor or cardiac monitor deciding whether they're going to cardio absorb or whether we're giving dopamine or lidocaine or something else. We're literally talking about AEDs, EpiPens, Narcan, you know, bandaging, you know, backboarding, C collars, so forth. I mean, I think 16, 17 year olds, if they go through the program, there are people who are going to step up. And even if they, you know, the, the really the point is to get them excited. Uh, because my question is, we spent a lot of money in high school programs. I mean, high school to, to students do MFR and EMT, but then at the end saying, no, you're not worthy of having a license. Uh, so that's one of the bills we're talking about. It's not for every 16 year old or 17 year old. I, I will say that I can speak from personal experience. Because I started my EMT program when I was 16. I was probably young and immature, but I was up for the challenge of doing the job. You know, none of us really mature fully. I mean, let's keep in mind, there's really not men. There's just older boys. Uh, so hope you enjoyed it, Angela. <laughs> I did. Thank you. So, I mean, so the reality is maybe the 16-year-old that has the mentality to, to work on an ambulance, you know, there's not something magical that happens at 18. They're going to be the right type A personality to be on an EMF at 25. And the 20 and the 16 year old that shouldn't be on an ambulance at 16 shouldn't be on an ambulance at 25 either. Because there's plenty of people out there that don't have, you know, the, you know, it's a, it's a unique person that gets in the back of the ambulance, that crawls into a car in the middle of the night that's overturned and it goes out and do it, does it. And I have a lot of respect for those people because I was one of those people, which is why I support them. Uh, you know, make sure that I haven't forgotten where I came from, I think they can do it. And it's the important part, it's permissive. So nobody, want well, to be clear, nobody's being forced to hire a 16 or 17 year old. So let's get these kids, these, these high school students, these young adults excited about this, get them in the pipeline and get them ready. Because even if your agency doesn't won't hire until 18, wouldn't it be better if they show up at your door at 18 and they're ready to get out there and serve our citizens? Excellent point. Let's talk about a couple of other bills that you currently have pending in the legislature. The first is a, a bill that you and I started talking about um, back at the height of the pandemic, and, and that is the opportunity for our state to have its own personal stockpile of PPE in particular and other supplies that became very hard to get um, at the beginning. And then through the kind of the height of the pandemic about 18 months ago, gloves, masks, gowns, etc., that so many of our small businesses stepped up to create. 
your goal is to have a state uh, stockpile so that that does not happen again, right? So that EMF, I mean, let's be clear, we were kind of down the ladder on as far as purchasing PPE is concerned and it, and it became pretty scarce. So you are advocating that we have a state stockpile so to ensure that that doesn't happen again. You wanna to touch on that a little bit? Happy to. You know, this is what we found. Uh, and I know, cause I was, you know, for years, it was always that you know, the federal supplies will come. The federal supplies will come. The stockpile will show up. And the federal government is not transparent about what they have. So really, we didn't know it was coming. It was just the federal, you know, I'm here from the federal government. I'm here to help you. <laughs> and when we when they did show up and, you know, realized that there wasn't as much in that stockpile as some people thought. And there's also a delay. That is just the reality. You, you know, you have to put the request in. Um, you have to request it, and it takes some time for it to show up. It's, it's not immediate. Also, the you know for the private sector to kick up production from their normal production levels, it takes some time also. And also, they're dealing with a pandemic themselves with their own staff to, to kick up production. So I think you know it's important not to point fingers because I, I will say this is not a Republican or Democratic issue. Lansing, Washington, everyone kind of failed on this. Uh, to really recognize this. I mean, let's, let's, we just had 9-11, and, uh, and I'm reminded by Chief Downey of uh, the Special Operations Command of, F, of the Fire Department of New York, who testified a few years before 9-11 in Congress and said, we need to support first responders because they will be the first ones there at a terrorist attack. And horribly ironic was that he died in the collapse of the towers. Uh, you know, the, really the man who went to Congress and said, Look, you need to support emergency responders, and for him to die, I mean, he really saw the future of, of what was happening. And um, I think we, this is something. I guess no, nobody. I don't know that we have. You know, we don't have a lot of people. We can't go back and get that history from the Spanish flu. There's been a few pandemics since, but really, you know, those lessons from then, I don't. We don't have. And that's the reality. And so now. This bill is to, to make sure the state of Michigan has two months supply uh, is, is what the current bill and so that we make sure that healthcare workers, emergency responders have PPE from the time. This is a gap filler between the supplies on your rigs and your, your stock between the time you run out to the time that the federal suppliers and the federal stockpile kicks in and, and comes in. Um, I think a lot of the, the uh, I'd say a little bit of hysteria was the lack of PPE that you know we were telling nurses, you know, nurses and paramedics that you need to take care of people, but yet we didn't have the PPE to protect them and so that they didn't take it home to their families, but then again continue to spread. So, you know, we we kind of settled on two months because we thought that we don't necessarily we're not stockpiling for an entire pandemic. It is to make sure that we have that cushion period, that, that gap filler. Uh, so I'm very happy to say that it's in the Senate. Uh, it's in the Senate uh, uh, Health Policy Committee. We've had one hearing on that. I think the reviews are generally favorable. We passed out a house uh, very, with very strong support, and we hope to get it out of the Senate. Uh, and said and DHS is supportive of, uh, of this, of doing this. But we want to make sure we take care of our healthcare workers and our emergency responders that uh, they're not having to worry about PPE protecting them while they're out serving. Absolutely true. And so that our first responders, our nurses, our frontline, our frontline folks can make sure that they feel confident in knowing that they are being protected and, and able to do their job. The second or the last bill I want to touch on today is a, another really important piece of 
of the system, of the EMS system. And, and that is the currently an EMS provider does have what a liability protection in, in the act of performing their job. Sometimes, however, that protection does not cover them. Um, I think most people would be surprised to find out that when an EMS professional is with a patient treating that patient, that the courts have not necessarily always interpreted that they were in fact treating that patient, that they may have actually just been transporting that patient. And in such a case, those, those liability protections would not cover that individual. That is, in my opinion, a detriment from, for someone to enter the job. If they think that there's a possibility for our court system to determine that they are not actively treating a patient, tell us a little bit about how you intend to help fix that to, again, encompass our, our providers in a, in a more safe setting. Yes, I mean, I think uh, it, it was always my impression, quite honestly, that we had some immunity protection, uh, you know, A, through treatment and transport, and that transport was part of treatment for us, because we treat and transport, uh, typically, and that we thought it was kind of like a package, you know, be sort of like moving patients around in the hospital between ER and the, you know, and radiology, <laughs> you know, you're, we're taking you, but this is part of the process. And to somehow think that, well, in the ER, you have, let's say you have immunity, but you have liability in radiology, but you don't have immunity in the hallway as you move them across. Now, I, I'm not an expert on immunity in hospitals, I'm saying, but just conceptually, you kind of think about that, that literally, you know, you're treating them in the, in the ambulance and you have some immunity, you know, protection. And it, it's not complete immunity. I mean, if you're grossly negligent, um, you're not protected, but basically some So I was always under the impression that the transport was included. Uh, in a recent case, I believe this spring came out, the court said, we realized the defendant and the defendant was an EMS agency, makes a valid case that uh, that transport should be included, but that's not what the law says. And, if the, and it specifically said, if the legislature wants it that way, they need to, um, they need to make it so. So this was brought to my attention by a few people and uh, very quickly introduced the bill to make, you know, to add to, make sure that transport is part of it, even though we always kind of thought that transport was part of it. So, uh, so that bill has been introduced. That is extremely important because as we touched on earlier today, we talked about how um, funding and reimbursement for EMS agencies is at a premium. And then to have to go fight these, these lawsuits, um, it, it does just add that additional burden. I, I appreciate you taking the time to kind of walk us through some of these policy-related bills that you are actively working on. Well, we definitely thank you for all that you have done uh, for EMS thus far in your term. We know you will continue to work um, very strongly uh, on behalf of Michigan's EMS agencies, the paramedics, the EMTs, the MFRs that are out there working the road every day. We truly appreciate your support and your continued advocacy on behalf of, of all of us. Is there anything else you'd like to add to our, or let our listeners know before we go for today? You know, it, what I, I would say, first off, thank you for everything you do out there. I, I can tell you that uh, I, I actually signed up to volunteer for the uh, uh, the state website. Never, uh, I got called up for one thing and then it got canceled, but I didn't get called up again. My local EMS, I told them, if you need me to get back on the rig, I'll get back on the rig. He said, look, they, uh, they didn't get to that point, but like, yeah, we might, you might need to come back. And, uh, you know, so I was ready to get my 
get back on, on the truck. I will say that, you know, I found myself, I appreciate all the work EMS did. I know it's been a tough, tough time. Um, in the legislature, we ended up, though, coming up, there was a lot of issues that came up that I never thought that we'd have to discuss during a pandemic. Uh, so a lot of our things, but I will say that uh, I miss it. Uh, I would say Lansing Fire drives by my, under the window of my office. I always, you know, my staff knows I miss climbing on the rig and going and doing it. Uh, but I will say this, uh, just like this uplift, I encourage people to connect with their legislature, their local legislator, be known uh, to them, just stopping in, reminding them. Um, you know, I will say a little thank you letter is not bad. I know this is just kind of saying, hey, it was noticed. We get so many, we typically get a lot of emails where people are upset about this and that. Hearing that you, you know, appreciate it, you know, that the uplift helps. It's developing a rapport. And it's important that all, I would say, when it comes to the legislature, and it said, because I was a firefighter and a paramedic, it's important that the fire, fire service, EMS, when it comes to legislative issues, it really helps when they're all on the same page. Um, I'm, I'm from this world. I, I, I am. I could speak firsthand. And when we sort of bicker amongst ourselves, you know, that doesn't help when you're trying to move legislation. I mean, you really kind of need to keep it in the family, let's say. Let's keep it in the family and have it out. But when we show up in Lansing to advocate for EMS and fire, we should be singing the same song. Okay, so you, because you don't want, you want all the legislators to be hearing the same, the same thing from everyone, you know, and that will help get things, good things for fire and EMS if they're, if we're not taking our, you know, our frustrations with, and that's the reality. We have different interests, whether you're the fire chiefs or the firefighters union or part-time or MOS, we have different groups, but we're all emergency responders. So I really think that when we come to Lansing, we need to advocate as one for EMS for emergency responders. Um, so that's just my little hint uh, to, to getting wins for the emergency services. Great advice, Representative. Thank you once again for spending 30 minutes of your very busy day here in Lansing with us on the Moz Monthly Podcast. And thank you for everything that you've done for EMS throughout your term. I hope you have a great day. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Moz Monthly Podcast, the go-to source for information about Michigan's EMS system. Be sure to visit miambulance.org slash podcast to join the conversation and access other important information from the Michigan Association of Ambulance Services.